So we're going to talk about chronic pain and sleep disorder. So how many people here still take care of patients? Thank God. When I go to meetings and people haven't seen a patient since Reagan was president, I always say, like, and these are the ones that are also passing guidelines and things. I'm going, like, you've got to get in the trenches if you're going to say anything important, right? So how many people think that they are effective in managing sleep disorders in people with complex chronic pain syndromes? I get this a little bit. Well, then you're in the right session, right? Because if you raised your hand, what the hell are you doing here? You could be at the bar, right? So um, I have no conflict of interest, um, no off-label, a couple of off-label things that are, that are not, but nothing that, in, that important. Here's our learning objectives, objectives, is to examine the reciprocal relationship between sleep disturbance and pain, which is really critical. Because I think what happens in pain management and particularly in this kind of opioid phobia kind of mentality we have, is that we don't treat the whole person, we don't manage sleep, we don't manage mood disorders very well, and we wonder why these people's lives are like country western song, right? They're not sleeping, their pain is poorly controlled, and sleep is critical, and the reciprocal relationship is important. We're going to look at the pros and cons of various pharmacologic agents. There's a lot of different agents out there for the treatment of, of sleep disorders in this patient population. And lastly is to really be able to explain the core principles of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which can be extremely effective. My last objective is that nobody falls asleep during my talk. If I see someone nodding, I'm going to whistle, all right? So here's what we're going to try to cover in the next 45 minutes. I'm going to spend time so we can actually talk about different cases sort of the pain and sleep mechanisms of action, why is sleep and pain so important, how to assess mood, anxiety, and sleep. From previous, if you're at previous talks that we gave here, it is the holy trinity to actually manage mood, sleep, and pain. And if you do it well, patients will have a better quality of life. Um, treatment approaches, both pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic, and then kind of wrap it up. So let's start with the case, just to kind of get your appetite wet. This is a patient, a 58-year-old male with a BMI of 34, with history of chronic low back pain and concomitant sleep disorder, anxiety, and depression. So he has the full deck. Medication regimen includes oxycodone, extended release, 30 milligrams, Q8 hours, hydrocodone, 5 milligram, two tablets every, every four hours, so an MEDD of about 175 milligrams. Diazepam, and one of my favorite drugs, Soma, right? This is not the, right? This, oh, yeah, yeah. So this is not uncommon that we see, right? People come in on this weird polypharmacy. They have elevated BMI. They're depressed. They're anxious. And you kind of say, what do I do first? I would suggest maybe selling used cars and quitting medicine, but that's a different issue. You know? So think about this, and at the end, we're going to come back here and, and see what you would decide to do with this patient. So we all know that people who suffer from persistent chronic pain, refractory pain, have multiple comorbidities that are very troubling for the patient and for society and for their families. The sleep disorders, the depression, the anxiety. Um, in a subgroup of people, um, substance misuse or abuse. Secondary medical problems. People are inactive, uh, they're fearful of movement, they gain weight, and they develop hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, which complicates their, their health and their welfare. 
um, functional disabilities and cognitive distortions. So again, all of us who deal with this patient population, we tend to see these people that come in with at least three or four of these. And again, where do we start? So let's really spend some time looking at pain and sleep disorders because that is the topic, is it? Right, okay. So we're going to do sleep disorders. So chronic pain is associated with multiple symptoms that may impair the person's quality of life and physical and emotional um, involvement. <clears throat> this is emotional distress, fatigue, sleep disturbance. There's a high prevalence of co-occurring pain and sleep disturbance. So let's take a little poll here. How many people think that the patients with chronic pain that present with co-occurring significant sleep disorders is greater than 10%, 20 percent, 30 percent, 50 percent, 60 percent. Gosh, you guys are pessimists. 70%, 80%. Wow, you're all great. How many people don't care? <laughs> oh. So studies have shown that at least 50% of patients with a number of, of different chronic pain conditions, so we're talking about neuropathic pain, chronic low back pain, have, uh, have suffered from uh, uh, insomnia. And that goes up to 70 to 88%. So this is not an inconsequential problem. But again, most people don't know, where do I start in treating them? A number of studies have shown that this, and supported this hypothesis that pain and sleep are reciprocal. They feed on each other. So this is a study by uh, uh, Nicole Tang, who's a colleague of mine at the University of Warwick. And what she did was evaluate 70 patients with chronic back pain and compare them with 70 uh, gender and age match pain-free controls. And they measured sleep disturbance, pain, a variety of psychological vari variables. And what they found was in this population that 53% of the patients with chronic pain demonstrated evidence of clinical, insom uh, clinical insomnia. Um, with only 3% of the pain-free. So that's a pretty significant difference. And insomnia severity was associated with pain intensity, sensory pain ratings, affective pain uh, ratings, general anxiety, general depression, and health anxiety. As a side note, because I do two research, <clears throat> pain and addiction and pain and suicide, and I always say that's why I'm not invited to many parties because nobody wants to be around me for some reason. But... Sleep disturbance is also independently associated with increase in suicidal ideation. And pain patients already are high prevalence of suicidal ideation. So when we're not treating these comorbidities, we're pushing people off the edge. This is another study looking at uh, by Lance McCracken and his group in London. They had 159 patients that were undergoing evaluation for a pain management center, and 79% of this cohort met criteria for significant insomnia. This is uh, some research from an R01 I have looking at patients that are on chronic opioid therapy. Um, this is a sample size of 620. And you can see that 40% of this population, and these are mostly people with chronic musculoskeletal pain, had noted severe uh, uh, insomnia, 34% moderate and 18 mild. Only 8% said that they slept well during the night. So again, it's a significantly correlated with pain and insomnia. So what happens when we don't treat insomnia in anybody, but in particularly with pain patients? Um, you have increased pain, and we'll talk about why. Excessive fatigue, poorer mood, and higher ratings of disability. So when people are not treated, everyone remembers when they've been sleep deprived going through their, their training, whatever that may be. How did you feel physically? Lousy. Right? You felt sick. 
And, you know, there's some studies that show that a study out of Vanderbilt looked at medical students who were sleep-deprived, and they developed widespread pain, you know, which we kind of think of as a trigger for fibromyalgia. So, again, lots of bad things happen when, when sleep is not adequately treated. So there's some, been some experimental studies uh, looking at, at uh, sleep deprivation in uh, normal subjects, although I don't know what normal is, but non-pain, medically, medically uh, free patients. And they found that sleep deprivation or disruption increased pain and inflammation, dampened mood, and pain inhibitory response. And long term, these people developed depression, anxiety, widespread pain, diabetes, hypertension, and, and CHD. So people who, who are sleep-deprived go on to develop not only widespread pain, but secondary medical problems. <clears throat> this is an interesting study looking at suicide that we had talked about. And this is 51 outpatients with non-cancer chronic pain uh, were recruited and completed the Pittsburgh Sleep Scale, uh, Beck Depression Inventory, Multidimensional Pain Inventory, et cetera. And what they found was that 24% of these patients reported suicidal ideation and endorsed higher levels of sleep onset insomnia, pain intensity, medication usage, pain-related interference, affective distress, and depressive symptoms. And stepwise discriminative analysis revealed that sleep onset insomnia severity and pain intensity predicted 84% of the cases of people who were suicidal. So again, and this data is even evolving in terms of sleep deprivation and mood disorder and, and, uh, and depression and um, uh, suicide. So what's the reciprocal relationship between pain and sleep? How does it feed on each other? So there's multiple studies that have been done that looks at pain and sleep as bidirectional, that, they, that, that people who have pain don't sleep as well, people who have sleep deprivation have more pain. So there are three mechanisms of action with regards to sleep disturbance and, and pain. One is reduced, physical reduced pain tolerance, pro-inflammatory process that's triggered by, by insomnia, and increased anxiety and lower mood, which is going to drive sleep and, and pain. So you have this kind of cycle that occurs with the patient. Sleep deprivation and pain feed on each other and mood disorders, and the patients just keep spiraling down that rabbit hole of, of dysfunction based on this kind of um, cycle. So this is a study, and you could only do this in Norway. You couldn't do it in the United States. So this is a, a study by Sverdsen, whatever his name, Borg, um, from 2015 in pain. And what he did is he collected questionnaire data on chronic pain and sleep and, and, and assessed experimental pain sensitivity via cold pressure test in 10,000 adults. Can you imagine trying to enroll 10,000 people and doing this? And results re uh, revealed that insomnia and frequency and severity, sleep onset problems, and sleep efficiency were associated with pain sensitivity, and that pain tolerance was reduced further in a synergistic fashion in participants who reported both chronic pain and insomnia. So what's happening when you have sleep deprivation, the patient actually has reduced actually pain tolerance. So when they're not sleeping, they're experiencing a heightened sense of pain. Now, this is looking at the relationship between cytokines, inflammation, and pain. And this is a very interesting study. This is just sort of a, a basic neuroscience uh, study looking at the, the role of cytokines. So what happens in certain cytokines, particularly interleukin-6, are pro-inflammatory. So this is a study looking at chronic low back pain, sleep disturbance, and interleukin-6. So these were gender and age-matched adults with chronic low back pain or without chronic pain, 
completed assessments of sleep quality in the past month, depressive symptoms in the past week, and provided a blood draw for interleukin-6. Results revealed that subjects with chronic low back pain had more sleep disturbance than controls, and circulating inter interleukin-6 levels were similar for the true groups, but however, in the patients with chronic low back pain, poor sleep quality was associated with higher interleukin-6 uh, levels, and both sleep and interleukin-6 were related to pain reports. So the underlying mechanism is that when people aren't sleeping, it increases the release of interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory process, and many of the pain patients you see, their pain is based on an inflammatory process, right? So when they're not sleeping, they're having this circulating interleukin-6. They have lower pain tolerance, and it just cycles and cycles and cycles. So the first step in this, is there any questions about that? I mean, that's kind of what goes on with the patients. It's just not that they're more moody because they're not sleeping. You're changing their biology, their psychology, and it's affecting their pain and quality of life. So it's important to assess not just mood and anxiety, but sleep, and to look at all three. So there's a variety of mental health screening tools, and you're probably familiar with a lot of them. Um, and there's also ones that measure both anxiety and depression. Uh, the one that's usually recommended by you know, a lot of the, uh, the uh, studies have been the Beck Depression Inventory 2 or the PHQ-9, which is actually free. <laughs> the, the Beck Depression Inventory is not free. I think it's like 25 cents per page. <laughs> so a lot of people in primary care use the PHQ-9. And it's also important to look at anxiety. In our pain clinic at Penn, for years, I kept saying, you have to look at anxiety also. And all they would measure is depression. And I said, well, wait a minute. What pushes sleep disturbance and pain and is anxiety just as much as, 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 as uh, uh, depression? So this is kind of a PHQ-4, which I recommend for busy primary care practices. It's a screener. So two questions on anxiety, two questions on depression. If they score positive for anxiety or depression, you can follow them with the PHQ-9, which is basically the, the, the uh, criteria from the DSM-4 for major depressive disorder. Again, it takes five minutes to do, so you can look at that and, and measure it. And oftentimes, you know, when you're starting antidepressants for mood disorders, it isn't nice to have some kind of metric that you're actually hitting the right part of the brain, you know, in terms of the uh, effect of your treatment. And then if they po are positive for anxiety, one can use like the GAD-7. Again, these are all free. They're downloadable. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing you have to pay for. And again, very, very simple, very simple uh, measurement of anxiety. So when you're starting to treat the, the, their sleep disorder and you're starting to treat their mood disorder, you can go back and kind of follow them and see if they're actually improving in terms of anxiety and depression. So what about sleep assessment? And again, we don't often do this. And how many people actually assess sleep in their practice? So what do you use? Just how do you, how do you assess? What's that? Okay, so if you're looking at, we well, you have that on obstructive sleep apnea. What about other, just sleep in general? Say it again. Okay, another good study. So there's lots of different ones that, that are out there. Here's a variety of sleep assessment scales. So they're ones that look at sleep quality. The one that's used a lot in uh, research is the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, um, the sleep questionnaire. One's looking at just sleep onset as a main problem, and then sort of general ones. And you have to look at 
you know, the time frame and how easy it is. In a very busy practice, how many things can you measure? <laughs> Honestly, the patient would have to come in three hours early just to fill out the paperwork. So you have to be careful and you have to be judicious with the patient's time and your time. And you can't have patient burden or your staff burden. So you have to kind of pick and choose what's the easiest for you to use. So looking at the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Scale, which again has been one used a lot in, in research, and it's kind of a nice one because it has 19 individual items, but they measure seven different kind of types of, of sleep quality. Subjective sleep quality, what the patient perceives, how they're sleeping, uh, sleep latency, duration, habitual sleep uh, efficacy, efficacy, sleep disturbance, if they use sleeping preparations, daytime function, which is really critical, and it takes about five to 10 minutes to administer. And we use this a lot in our research, but we've also been using it in our clinic. And so you can kind of, if you really are interested in sleep, if they, are, if they score high on this, you can go back and see where they're having the problems with their sleep, not just a general one. A lot of people use sleep logs. This is one um, that we developed and use in our clinic. And this is just getting the patient's uh, sort of perception of pain. So what we look at is what time did you go to bed when did you get to sleep? How many hours uh, did you, how many times did you wake up? How long were you awake for each awakening? To get, a, again, an idea of what some of the dynamics are with the patients. Um, and if they use medications, did they exercise, which will all be relevant when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. When they exercise, how much they exercise, did they stay in bed um, after, they, after they woke up? And then we look at cognitive appraisals, because this is a sort of a blueprint of helping people with CBT insomnia. What were they thinking? They didn't sleep well. What was on their mind? Were they ruminating? Were they catastrophizing? And that gives us an, a window to sort of intervene with these patients with cognitive behavioral interventions. So actigraphy, how many people have this on? I can't get it, right? The Fitbit, how many people have it, right? Yeah, pretty good. I should have bought stock on that. Um, but activity has been around for a long time. Now it's very popular. You know, we count our steps, and if we're under 10,000, we're a slug. You know, <laughs> we always have this, this, mon this monitor here. But it's been used a lot in, in sleep studies to get kind of an accurate assessment of, of how, many, how many hours a patient's in bed. Again, this is all really important when you start to layer in cognitive behavioral therapy and for insomnia. So again, using this is much more objective because <clears throat> we know that patients' perceptions and our perceptions are not always you know, very accurate. Like, I, how much did you sleep? Ugh, I only sleep one hour a night, and I've been doing that for 10 years. I'm going like, you look pretty good for someone who's dead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. And so sometimes getting some objective measures, not just the patient's perception, but also some objective measures, again, gives you some data to, to look at when you intervene. Are you actually making a difference? So this is important looking at uh, assessment of sleep disordered breathing. You know, part of the concern of, of opioid therapy, and I'm not pro or against opiates, I'm pro patients and pro clinicians who take care of them. But you know, this has been a big problem in the unintentional overdoses on opioid therapy, even lower MEDDs, is a sort of un undiagnosed uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So this is an article that we did in Pain Medicine, Lynn Webster and I, on opioid therapy for sleep disorders. And basically, you have to do a sleep assessment. So things are history and physical examination. So assessing the neck circumference, very easy. Do you wear a shirt collar? How big is your shirt collar? 18 inches or greater puts you at risk for obstructive sleep apnea in terms of airway. Evaluate throat and nose for restriction. Obtain a urine drug test to detect non-prescribed benzodiazepine, because what really kills people? 
is combination of opiates and the you know benzodiazepines that you may not even know that their psychiatrist prescribed or someone else prescribed. So sometimes it's not a bad idea to get just a, a, a sample and see are there other medications or if you have the prescription drug monitoring program to look and see if they're taking other medications that might synergistically cause an, a poor outcome. Bless you. Um, administer the Epworth sleepiness scale, which we'll show you in a second, looking at uh, the high risk for obstructive sleep apnea. And if the patient is a candidate for opioid therapy or is on opioid therapy and they're positive on any of these metrics, it really to, it's important to obtain a sleep study. And now they're having these portable at-home ones that are actually pretty, pretty sensitive. So it's important that you're not just protecting yourself but actually identifying uh, issues with the patient. So this is the Epworth sleepiness scale. I think how many people use it? I think a couple people use it. These are all things you don't have to administer all the time, but it's nice to have it in your back pocket in case you suspect someone might have obstructive sleep apnea. Again, it's a very simple scale. It's basically use, uh, to choose the most appropriate number. Um, so in these situations, sitting and reading would never doze, slight chance of dozing, moderate, high. And if someone is above 12, 10 to 12 is borderline, above 12 means that they have a high risk for having obstructive sleep apnea. Again, it's a two-second test. So these are things that I think you should have in your clinic and use when appropriate. Let's look at treatment approaches, starting with pharmacologic approaches. So pharmacologic approaches have been kind of been around for a long time. So what do we really think of when we're looking at sleep disorders and from a pharmacologic perspective? So ones are benzodiazepine receptor agonists, non-benzo receptor agonists, melatonin receptor agonists, sedating antidepressants, atypical antipsychotic medications, which I always would quiver about, but, you know, and anti-epileptic drugs, or combinations that may target more than just sleep. For example, someone has a neuropathically you know, driven pain disorder and you get them on the right AED um, and it also helps their sleep the way you time it. So sometimes you can kill two or three birds with one stone. So let's look at each one of these in turn, starting with the benzodiazepine receptor agonist. So again, there's a bunch of different ones on the market, you know, temazepam, triazolam, um, and newer classes of non-benzo ones, particularly zolpidine, which is probably the one that's most prescribed. And this class of drugs binds to the GABA-A receptors and induces a sedative, hypnotic, amnestic kind of effect, axiolytic kind of effect, and an anticonvulsant effect. So you're really targeting lots of different things. There's been many short-term uh, clinical trials that show that the benzos improve sleep quality, sleep latency, wakefulness, after sleep onset, and total sleep time. Does anyone here feel comfortable giving people benzos for sleep long-term? Does anyone, anyone have the courage to raise their hand if they believe that, <laughs> you know, honestly? So most benzos, you know, excluding triazolam, have intermediate to long half-lives, uh, helping patients fall asleep and stay asleep longer. Again, the FDA has approved benzodiazepines for insomnia, and there's a bunch of different ones out there. Temazepam is one, triazolam is another, you know, um, Dalmain, which I haven't seen for a long time. Florazepam, I haven't seen that used in a long time. But they've all been FDA approved for using for insomnia long term. Many people use like the lorazepam, alprazolam, and the clonazepam, which is really off-label. I can't tell you how many patients come in on a high opioid MED and they're on two or three milligrams of clonazepam at night to induce sleep, right? And again, it's off-label. 
Uh, I think sometimes docs just, you know, you know, sometimes they inherit these patients, you know, but really it is really bad practice. For patients with chronic pain, the short-term benzos may be useful for muscle tension, anxiety, and even some neuropathic pain as well as sleep. And one, but one study found that long-term use greater than one year, the pain patients using, using benzos had no improvement in sleep. O over time, they just get tolerant to it and it actually can be disruptive to sleep. You know, they may work well in short-term efficacy trials, uh, but there's a, really a lack of data on long-term use of these. But how, I mean, I'm, I keep polling people because I think it's interesting. How many people inherit patients that have been on benzos for like greater than six months for sleep? I mean, look at, look at your colleagues out here. You know, and we inherit these people and getting people off of them is really, really hard, either psychologically dependent or physically dependent. And, and even though their sleep quality is horrible, that's why I like to, to do like the sleep logs and do different things and say, well, look, at, your sleep is pretty bad. Obviously, this molecule doesn't help you. So maybe we're going in the wrong direction here. So I think collecting that data is important. Long-term use of benzodiazepines clearly can lead to depressive symptomatology. They are CNS uh, depressants can lead to emotional um, depression with cognitive and psychomotor slowing. Abruptly discontinuing benzos. The best thing is patient comes in and says, I ran out of my pain medicine. I said, we have good news for you. You're not going to die from it, right? You'll feel horrible for 48 to 72 hours, but you're not going to die. Oh, I'm on, I'm on high dosing of benzos and I, and I run out. Now we have a serious problem in terms of lowering for seizures and other problems. There, it's a, we wrote a paper a little while ago about the use of benzos short term because everyone was so, so against benzos in any case for chronic pain. But if you're treating anxiety disorder, right, what's the first line therapy? and it's not duloxetine, <laughs> SSRIs. How long do SSRIs take to, to actually build up to a therapeutic level? Two to four weeks. So sometimes using benzos, and psychiatrists do this and they call it bridge. They bridge, right? They bridge, and so they'll do short-term benzos until they get the SSRI, and it's all related to improving their sleep also, because as their anxiety goes down, their sleep is going to improve. So there's a role for them, but there is no data to suggest that long-term use of benzos for sleep or other, or other conditions is really defendable. And if we look at this slide of drug misuse and abuse, <clears throat> so this is from 1999 to 2011, so this is the number of people that abuse or uh, misuse these medications, benzos parallel opiates. And for some reason, they get on these combinations of my favorite, a benzo, a, a high dosing opiates, and soma, one of my favorites. And everyone knows how soma metabolites in your body? As meprobamate, which was taken off the market how long ago? And when the patient comes in and says, that is the only drug that helps me, you know, for my muscle spasms as they're falling asleep and drooling you know, on themselves, you know? So again, Benzos have a role if you're treating the anxiety, and if you're a good practitioner, you will treat the anxiety, the depression, the sleep, and the pain. But if you're starting an SSRI, you may need a little bit of benzos initially for that bridge, but long-term, again, it's really not a, a reasonable. If you look at this data, the most common drugs involved in overdoses in the United States. So in 2013, there were 44,000 drug overdose deaths. 51% were related to pharmaceuticals. Of that, about 71% involved opiates and about 30% uh, involved benzos. And the ones who died of drug overdose often had the combination of benzos and opiates on board. 
So again, I think when we, we, we inherit these patients, it's very difficult because they, they come in on this combination and it's difficult to kind of wean them up. But I think if you can get their sleep better and you start, you know, people are, are very talking about opioid sparing. Well, opioid sparing is treating the whole person. That's how you opioid spare. You treat the anxiety, the depression, and the sleep disorder. So let's look at the non-benzo receptor agonists. So there are ones like Zolpidem is the biggest one, you know, Sonata. I love those names, Sonata. Doesn't that make you sleep? Uh, Lunesta. And whoever's created with these names, I like it. So the, this is a class of drugs that improve sleep latency and have potential for fewer daytime side effects given their short half-life and receptor binding profile. Zolpidem has been the most you know, prescribed drug for insomnia. And as compared to benzodiazepines in a double-blind placebo-controlled study, it was shown to remain effective for eight months of nightly use with no evidence of tolerance or rebound. But there are some side effects, right? Safety trials have demonstrated there are sleep eating, sleepwalking, sleep driving. My favorite story was a woman who was just started on Zolpidem, and she came in and she said, well, it's about my third or fourth night taking it. My, I woke up in the morning, my daughter said, Mom, how did you sleep? She said, ah, pretty damn good. I slept pretty well. She goes, let's go outside for a second. She had actually slept walk and got on the road, riding mower and mowed down all the flower beds of the neighbors and everybody. <laughs> so, so it probably wasn't a good choice for her. So I think Zolpidem, I think there's some real, I, I'm kind of pro-con Zolpidem in some ways. I don't think it's a really good drug long term. It was really, if you remember when it came on the market, it was really correct for people who were flying back from Asia and they needed to have two or three days of sleep. And a lot of patients long term have just, I personally have not seen them have a really good uh, response in terms of sleep improvement. What about antidepressants? People are more comfortable with antidepressants, right? And there's a variety of them on the market. So if we look at sedating antidepressants, such as the tricyclics, mirtazapine, trazodone, and they're very useful for treating chronic pain uh, patients with insomnia. So there are really three classes of drugs that are helped to relieve. Insomnia, associated depression that negatively influences pain perception, and the pain condition itself. Before we had all these designer drugs, what did we use? Amitriptyline was used for migraines. It was used for neuropathic pain, descending control. So in some, if you get the right antidepressant, you may be killing two or three birds with one stone. You may help them sleep. You may help their mood disorder and, in, in, and directly or indirectly improve their pain. So the tricyclics have been are pro-serotonergic, noradrenergic, dopaminergic, and sodium channel blocking effects that may account for their efficacy both in pain, depression, along with that anticholinergic and antihistamine effects that lead to sedation. Um, at standard doses, tricyclics have shown equal efficacy in treating neuropathic pain. However, they are, are not all equal in promoting sleep. Dizipramine and imipramine, I've had lots of people use imipramine at night to induce sleep. They are far less sedating. In fact, they actually disrupt sleep. So it's not just whatever the tricyclic du jour you want to use. Uh, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, triampamine, and doxepin, on the other hand, may decrease uh, sleep latency, sleep e efficacy, and increase total sleep time. So of all these, of these ones, which is the only tricyclic that has been approved by the FDA for insomnia? Doxepin, right? So I don't, I don't even know what the company is because, like I said, I have no conflict of interest, but I thought it was really funny that the dosing is like one to six milligrams, and it's like, an, and there's nothing, there's no new molecule. You know that, don't you? That we just recycle it and put it into, into a patch versus an oral. Um, but it is one that's been helpful. 
So amitriptyline is probably the best studied tricyclic uh, for improving sleep in patients with comorbid pain, especially headaches, fibromyalgia, and neuropathic pain. Again, it tends to be poorly tolerated, especially when you get about above 50 milligrams, right? Start to have that anticholinergic effect, the dry mouth, constipation, some dizziness, particularly in the elderly. Nortriptyline is a metabolite of amitriptyline, slightly less sedating, but also may have less side effects. So I see a lot of people use nortriptyline and just push the dosing up a little bit because it has lower side effect profile. And then, as we said, doxepin is the only one that's been really approved you know, for, for insomnia at that low dosing of one to six milligrams. You know? But it does come in a 10 milligram tablet, so you can actually do this with you know, maybe off-label. But what's that? Right. But you can, 10 milligrams versus six, I doubt that the brain is really going to, the four milligrams is going to make that much a difference. I mean, doxepin is probably the most effective, and it has lower side effect profile. Um, so I, 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 most people don't use doxepin anymore, honestly, and I'm not sure why. People, usually it's a go-to is amitriptyline, and I, I think it's very effective. It's just 10 milligrams may do the choice. If you start pushing the dosage up, I mean, you don't get an antidepressant effect until you get into 75 plus, but 10 milligrams in lots of patients do really, really well with amitriptyline, and they don't have the side effects. So any, I think any of these three at a low dose you know, would be very effective for the patient. So trazodone, that's also a big go-to drug, right? So it's an uh, antagonistic of serotonin type 2. It's a histamine, alpha-1, adrenergic receptors, and weakly inhibits serotonin reuptake. Um, it exerts most of its hypnotic effects at low doses and works as an antidepressant at higher doses. Although in my many years of doing this, I've never seen someone have a good antidepressant effect from trazodone. There is some evidence of adjective effect when used with pregabalin for pain patients. So again, pharmacotherapy for these complex patients are usually the right polypharmacy, right? Targeting the sleep, and you might get, with the amitriptyline or trazodone, might get some adjunctive kind of response with the right you know, use of anti-epileptic drugs. So again, not a lot of side effect profiles, right? Of course, I, this one day I had a patient come in, young guy, and uh, he was really uncomfortable, and he kept squirming around in the chair. And I said, did someone just start you on trazodone? <laughs> he goes, yeah, how did you know that? <laughs> so you know what he had. <laughs> so I gave him an ice pack, and he was fine, set on an ice pack. <laughs> so again, low side effect profile for most people can be very effective for patients, you know, and you can really kind of push it up to pretty high doses without side effects. Mirtazapine, how many people use mirtazapine? Good drug, right? So it's an antidepressant with sedating qualities due to the antagonism of type 1 histaminergic and serotonin uh, type 2 receptors. Doses of, it's an interesting drug because at 15 to 30, 7.5 to 30, it does two things. It helps sleep and it helps promote, stimulate appetite. So it's used a lot in cancer patients. The antidepressant effect isn't until you get greater than 30 milligrams. But when you go higher on it, it has less effect on sleep. So it's a drug that sometimes I have patients come in, they're on 45, 60 milligrams, and they're not sleeping at all, and that's what it was prescribed for. So it's kind of a paradoxical, the lower the dose, the more effective it is. Now, that being said, if someone comes in and is struggling with weight gain, you know, because they're inactive, this is not the drug to put them on, because they will gain 30 to 40 pounds with this, and they will be really unhappy with you. But it is a good drug in the right patient. How about melatonin receptor agonists? Do we recommend that for patients sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, for good, it's good. Melatonin receptor agonists include the natural ligand melatonin as well as non-melatonin drugs. 
Romaltion. Romaltion is the only one that's actually a prescription drug, the only one approved by the FDA for uh, sleep disturbance. Uh, it's been shown to induce sleep by attenuating the wake-promoting uh, impulses in the hippocampus. Uh, it's available over-the-counter. I have some people who don't have real severe, again, it's the severity of their insomnia. If they have mild sleep disturbance, why not start with something a little bit benign? Low-dose trazodone, melatonin, remalteron, something different. Um, again, it's been approved, remalteron has been approved in 2005. Um, it's the only one approved by the FDA for sleep. How many people have the courage to do antipsychotics? <laughs> you know, I think psychiatrists do, and I think that's probably in their preview. But there are two newer atypical antipsychotics medications, Seroquel and Zyprexa, that have been used for sleep with insomnia. Again, the problem is um, they do help with sleep, but just the, the, the long-term side effects are just really something that's hard to justify. I had a patient who um, was on pretty high doses of Seroquel for sleep regulation with no psychotic features, and she started to develop you know, tardive dyskinesia, and it became a real big issue with them. But I think psychiatrists are probably really good at doing this. I'm not sure that other people feel as, as comfortable with it, but you have to work for the, look for those side effects. Anti-epileptic drugs, again, killing two birds with one stone. Gabapentin, pregabalin, often used to treat chronic pain, you know, particularly neuropathic disorders and comorbid insomnia. Multiple studies of patients with neuropathic pain and fibromyalgia. Self-reported sleep outcomes suggest positive effects on sleep latency and wakefulness after sleep onset, as well as increased deep sleep. Both have sort of adjunctive effects on depression and anxiety. So again, pregabalin showed an increased efficacy in promoting sleep in patients with diabetic neuropathy compared to amitriptyline. Adverse effects of dizziness and next day sedation. The issue is, if, it's, if they're sedated, start it at night. You know, this is what we do with, with you know, these drugs anyway. You don't start in the middle of the day. Sorry, you had a question? Go ahead. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, very effective. And again, it's the side effects that people have problems with, you know, feeling kind of goofy and cognitively impaired. And, but, you know, you can load them up at night. You don't have to give them during the day, and they'll still have a, an, an effect of neuropathic pain. It doesn't have to be distributed through the day. But again, think about this differently. Think about, I have a patient that comes in, what are all their symptoms? They aren't sleeping, they're depressed, they're anxious, and they have poorly controlled neuropathic pain. If you do the right combination here, you're going to have a very happy patient. You're going to help with the sleep and the pain. When you help the sleep, the pain is going to be better. When you treat their anxiety, their sleep is going to be better and their pain is going to be better. So think about choosing these medications for the right patient the right condition. Again, there's lots of over-the-counter drugs that are used. Again, most of them have, you know, the antihistamines have some short-term efficacy, but in reality, they really have a lot of side effect profile. Um, two studies, I want to be real quick here because we're running out of time. Um, two studies real quickly, and I'll skip this, looking at the increased risk of suicide with anti-epileptic drugs um, and also uh, with, for neuropathic pain and fibromyalgia. So this study looked at suicidal uh, ideation uh, with anti-epileptic drugs. The same group did one associated with antidepressant medication. I'll just tell you the bottom line is that the data was really not very clear one way or the other. And what the authors suggested that if you are starting these medications, you should just be cognizant of whether they have increased suicide. So again, the data is sort of out on that, but you should at least be aware of it. So let's switch and go to cognitive behavioral therapy. So we all know CBT, right? 
So the pain patients do two things. They catastrophize, oh my God, 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 the world's going to end, and kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement. And both of those conditions can limit the patients, can, can really add to their dysfunction. The objective of CBT is to help the patient reconceptualize their role in their disease process from inactive, reactive, to proactive. There's specific uh, interventions, relaxation therapy, stress management, cognitive restructuring, followed by skill consolidation, rehearsal, and relapse training. So CBT has been effective in a variety of pain conditions from arthritis, sickle cell, low back pain, down to pain in breast cancer patients. Um, one study looking at a Cochrane report looking at psychological therapies for the management of chronic pain in adults. What they found was to, they looked at a variety of studies. 40, 42 studies met criteria. 35 um, uh, provided data. There was 4,788 patients. What they found, the main result is CBT is effective in altering mood and catastrophizing outcomes when compared to treatment as usual. So we all kind of believe that CBT helps people. So a variation of it is CBT insomnia. Um, and this is really kind of a really interesting one. So it's been dis actually been demonstrated to be equally as effective or even superior to pharmacotherapy in patients with chronic primary insomnia. So it consists of basically six components. Psychoeducation about sleep and insomnia, stimulus control, uh, sleep restrictions, sleep hygiene, relaxation therapy, and cognitive structuring. So stimulus control strengthens the patient's association of the bed with rapid onset sleep. So you teach the patient to limit the use of bed for only sex and sleep. Uh, avoid daytime, who's laughing at the sex thing? <laughs> uh, avoid daytime naps. Maintain a regular wake-sleep cycle. Go to bed only when sleepy, and when, get out of bed if you're not asleep within 15 to 20 minutes. So you're trying to get that association with bed and sleep. People do all kinds of crazy things in bed, and we're not talking about the sex, okay? Get your mind out of the gutter, for the love of God. We're talking about they had their computer, they have, their, they have their laptop. They have their everything. In the, in the, I had this one patient. She showed me a picture. She had a treadmill, a computer, laptop. And what happens is the room becomes associated with everything but sleep. And the hardest struggle with people is take the TV out of the bedroom. It's the only way I can sleep. I had a patient who would never believe that there was this kind of condition response. She, she went up to a cabin where there was no electricity, and so they had to go to bed. bed. She came back and said, Oh, you were right. I really slept great. You know, it was a novel thing. But getting them to kind of change that. Uh, sleep restriction is very important. It limits the amount of bed a patient spends in bed the actual time of sleep. You want sleep efficiency, okay? Sleep efficiency is 80% or greater. What that means is if you're in bed for 10 hours, you should be asleep for 8 hours. That's your target for sleep efficiency. So if a patient spends 8 hours in bed but only 4 hours total of sleep, they would be instructed to only spend four hours in bed, and you restrict everything down. This leads to sort of mild sleep deprivation, but over time, as the sleep efficiency improves, the patient gradually increases their time in bed because you want that 80 to 85% or higher sleep efficiency, and that's when people are getting restorative sleep. Sleep hygiene, again, very simple. Caffeine, alcohol, certain foods will disrupt your sleep. Citrus, actually will actually cause sleep disturbance taken at night. L-tryptophan, um, uh, and everyone, all of us fall asleep after Thanksgiving, right? So turkey has L-tryptophan, helps to get to sleep. So there are certain foods that help promote sleep and certain ones that, that affect sleep. Uh, timing of intense exercise. The best time to exercise to improve your sleep is late afternoon. 
because it raises your, your body temperature and it, it changes your circadian rhythm. So if you do it in the morning or in the midday, it actually will not improve your sleep. It will have no effect. Or if you do it late at night, I did that the other night when I was flying out. I did, I, for some reason, I exercise at 8 o'clock at night. All night, I'm just awake. <laughs> you know? So it's timing. Bright lights and use of computers. And the benefits of restful bedroom environment. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it too dark? Is it too light? Getting the patient to change their environment so that they can improve. Relaxation training reduces cognitive and physical tension close to bedtime and involves techniques such as hypnosis, meditation, guided imagery to help them kind of calm the nervous system. Cognitive therapy helps the patient. When you can't sleep at night, what are you saying to yourself? I got to go to sleep. 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 I have a plane tomorrow. What happens? More anxiety and you don't sleep. So patients learn to identify maladaptive or distorted thoughts and replace them with more adaptive substitutes, thereby improving that's sort of alleviating the worry and ruminations. Because people who don't sleep are so fearful of getting in bed and not sleeping. So dealing with those catastrophizing thoughts actually improve their sleep quality. So this is a study that was looking at a parallel group, randomized single-blind trial of CBT with a contact um, measurement control condition. There was 28 uh, subjects with chronic neck and back pain were randomized in two groups. One received CBT um, Insomnia had significantly improved sleep, and these patients maintain a statistically and clinically improved total of sleep time even eight months after treatment. So it's a very durable treatment. This is a hybrid group where you combine pain CBT with insomnia CBT by Nicole Tang and her group. And again, she looked at this, this combined group, and what they found was that there was an improvement in uh, pain interference, fatigue, depression, as compared to a monitoring group. And these, these were associated with hybrid intervention, and they were clinic, clinically significant at one- and six-month follow-ups. So this is a very easy kind of t technique to teach patients. It's very important. If you get the right pharmacotherapy and the right cognitive therapy, you can actually make a significant difference and lower their risk for other problems. Here's the problem with everything we talked about. It is easier to get a handgun than it is to see a psychiatrist or a substance use a provider, right? I actually was giving a webinar the other day and I had this slide on here and someone wrote in a question, do you have data about that? I'm going like, it was a joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's probably true, right? So what's the quickest you can get someone into a mental health provider? Six months, eight months, you know, nine months. So we're, we're having all these new guidelines for care, but we can't access them. So CBT might be the best thing, getting them to the right person might be the best thing. How do you match this demand with how many people you know, are actually trained in doing this? So there's lots of interventions have been done. Some of the f more famous ones or more effective ones was Kronecki in 2009. Did an, he, he was a, he's a primary care doc, if you know him, and he was so sick of not being able to get people into mental health care that he actually developed an antidepressant algorithm for pain patients, and he also developed like a, a six-session um, a, a self-guided program on cognitive behavioral therapy to improve pain coping skills. Significant improvement in pain, function, and pain, and that was, and that was, that was through 12 months of follow-up. Other ones are e-health. Computer-assisted CBT has been used quite effectively for like substance abuse. Uh, Kathy Carroll in Columbia used it with on cocaine addicts and found that it was almost as equal to face-to-face to, uh, -face CBT, which means I'm gonna be out of business and selling used cars. Uh, telemedicine's been used in, in, um, in the VA, in rural areas, you know, delivering care. We do psychiatric care all the time by telemedicine now. Um, smartphone apps have been around. There's one in substance abuse where 
if someone is recovering and they're in a city that they're not familiar with and they feel like they're going to crave, they're craving drugs, they hit this app and it tells them exactly where the AA, NA programs are, what time they are, how to get there. The smart apps for pain have not been well developed and they haven't really involved pain people in developing, but again, this is how we deliver it. Even people who are poor, 85% have a better smartphone than you have in your pocket. So this is a technique that we can really build on because saying this stuff works but not getting people to have access is incredibly frustrating. So what's the bottom line? Sleep disturbance is common in patients with chronic non-cancer pain but is frequently not assessed or treated. Untreated sleep disturbance can cause additional suffering for the patient, physical, emotional, and impact quality of life with patients with pain. Effective management of sleep can result in opioid sparing. You, you, you treat their sleep, their, their mood, and their anxiety, they will require less opiates. I guarantee you. Well, I don't know if I guarantee you, but I'm pretty sure about it. <laughs> Only a comprehensive approach to assessment, monitoring, and treatment will effectively manage sleep disturbance, but access needs to be addressed. Everyone in this room should be lobbying for people who do cognitive medicine to get paid for it. Do I hear a hallelujah for anyone? Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. But we all have to talk out, right, and say that the fact that I spend time with the patient, I should make more money than my plumber, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, and having access to mental health care, we all have to be part of this solution. Let's go back to our case, just real quickly. 58-year-old male, BMI, 34, history of chronic low back pain, concomitant sleep disorder, anxiety, depression, Medication regimen includes oxycodone, the hydrocodone, the diazepam, et cetera. So what would you do here? You're a primary care provider. Uh, number one, uh, reduce the opioid regimen to less than 90 milligrams MED because that will uh, decrease their risk of an overdose because they are overweight and may have obstructive sleep apnea. Refer the patient to physical therapy because they have back problems. Now, this is initially. Discontinue the diazepam, the soma, and prescribe sertraline and trazodone. Order a sleep study. How many people say one? Two. You say just one. Two. Three. Four. How about all the above? How about one, three, and four? Oh, boy, the all above one. But actually, it's one, three, and four. Like, why would you send them to physical therapy initially, necessarily? Because this is the initial step. You want a sleep study. They're overweight. They're on drugs that can actually harm them. So my thought is that physical therapy is kind of down the road. Anyway, this is an article we wrote in Anesthesia Clinics um, on this entire topic. If you want a copy of it, you, all you have to do is email me, and I'll send you a copy, and it kind of reviews what, what we've talked about today. And that's my email, and thank you for staying awake. <laughs> <laughs>